0: Someone handed me a purse and said, someone lost this purse. So it's a nine west. Is it yours, Dan? Is this anyone's? Nobody wants to admit to losing a purse? Because if you don't claim it, I'm taking all the money. That's the way it's going to go. When you hand a guy a purse, only one way for a guy to carry a purse, and it's like this. All right? So all right, if someone wants to claim out later, let me know. I have not looked inside by the way. So um, we've talked about doing a Q&A panel discussion at the end of the series and I know sometimes you need help in like, thinking of what kinds of questions to ask and talk about. So what I brought up some questions that, um, that were brought up many, many years ago by students that were in this ministry a long time ago as, uh, ho- in hopes that these would like, fuel some thought for you. So I'm going to read some questions from previous years um, from, from some previous years, uh, several years ago. So here's one of the first questions we got a, a few years back. Um, how do I learn to depend on God more and not on guys? How do I make God my first priority? Good question. Another question. Is there anything wrong with dating, and how can you tell the difference between love and just a crush or something? That's how the person worded it. That's how she worded it. I say it's a she. I don't know if it's a she or not. Um, is it okay to talk quotation marks, to more than one girl, but not go out with any of them? That was a real question someone asked a while back. Uh, How do you know you're ready for a relationship? Probably not that person that wrote the last question, right? Um, How would you know, how would you go about asking a girl you like, but you're scared to talk to her? How do I know if it's the right girl? All right, good questions. These are real questions, real people, and real questions. Oh man, this next question's a, a winner. Is making out a sin? Hey, people ask questions, right? My job's help answer them. Um, a few more questions. So I love this one. It's so worded, so exactly, whatever. What age should I date? I'm turning fifteen. No, I'm sorry. What age should I date? I'm 15 turning 16 December 1st. Okay. Thanks for that information. (laughs) Thanks for the heads up because the magic age is not 16. Sorry to spoil it for you. Uh, How can I feel secure? This is a really good question. How can I feel secure when all men seem to want is outward beauty and that beauty will not last? That's a good question. That's a really good question. All right. Um, another question, why can't guys tell you when they like you? Someone sounds bitter. All right. Why are girls so mad when we talk to other girls? <laughs> Man, this is kids. Kids these days. All right. Why do parents and church leaders make it seem like we are crazy for wanting to be in a serious relationship? Considering people in the Bible got married at pretty young ages. Man, these are good questions. I want that old youth group back. I'm kidding, kidding. I'm joking. I love you guys. All right, next question. Why does the good girl always go for the bad guy? Wow. Another good question. And I think we have one more here. Oh, this is a really good, real-life question. Listen, listen, uh, serious question. What should I do if I've been sexually active with my boyfriend and we're still dating? All right? So, listen, I know some of these questions may not be your questions exactly, but uh, we're, we're hopefully going to do a Q&A panel discussion if you guys get good questions to us, um, middle of March. And if you want to text message or email questions to us, you can look at the, um, that email address there. You can text or email that and get us questions for that uh, panel discussion. So here's the plan for the next two weeks. Today we're discussing men and marriage. Next week's going to be women and marriage. And just because today is directed mostly at the guys, this does not mean the girls need to tune out. Because this is also going to be for the girls as well. Um, because you get to hear what kind of man you should look for. And next week, whenever... Uh, Megan's going to deliver the message for the young ladies and when we address women does not mean that the guys get to tune out because you get to figure out what kind of woman God may have for you and so um, now this, these two talks are not going to be about you know who changes the oil and who mows the grass and who cooks and who cleans the house. This is a lot bigger than those kinds of roles in marriage. We're looking at some big picture concepts these next two weeks. and But today is going to be mainly directed towards the young men. And we've talked a lot in this series about this concept of reverse engineering your life. So you start with the end in mind. You get in your mind God's picture of what marriage is supposed to be about and what kind of person you should be, what kind of person you should search for. And this should inform your real life dating decisions right now. We talked about reverse engineering and starting with the end in mind and working backwards. So that means as a young man, that means you've got to start thinking about this now. You you can't play the game of like, well, I'm only 16, I'm only 17. No, no, this is not some game we're playing. You need to start thinking about this now in this early part of your life. So, um, and also if you're someone who is is attending this series and you're not yet you would not call yourself a Christian yet then first off I'm really glad that you've come into this building but our hope for you is that you would come to know Christ first and I'll tell you that you're created for relationship but you're created for relationship primarily with God first and then with other people so if you don't get the relationship with God sorted out first then everything else is going to not be what it's supposed to be for. That's true of friendship and true of a dating relationship and a marriage relationship. So our hope is that you would put your life in the hands of Christ, surrender your life to him first, and then let him sort out your masculinity and what it means to be a man. Now, I've told you guys throughout this series that um, I've shared just bits and pieces of my own story with you. I've talked to you about uh, my own upbringing, my own family life, my own father, and um, if I were to look at what it meant to be a man, just looking at my own dad, it would look something like this. It would look like, okay, hard worker. My dad rarely ever slept in, and my dad never missed a day of work that I could remember in his life. Uh, being sick, he was just always a healthy guy. Strong man, went to work. So he was very... Um, good at that part of his role as a man, provider and all those kinds of things. But he'd come home and he wouldn't say much. Go watch TV and whenever it's time to eat, he'd go eat. He'd sit in silence and eat his food. Dinner would finish, he'd put his plate on the counter, back downstairs to watch more TV. And that was the extent of what I saw. Now there was some there was some fun that we had. We did some fun things, but for the most part, I would say my dad was physically present but emotionally absent. And so if I just emulated that, that's what I might be as a father today. But fortunately, God put men, namely my youth pastor, into my life. And someone I watched the way he treated his wife and his kids. I watched the way he lived out his life and his faith. And this is a man who um, gave me a different picture of what a man should be in his family and in a marriage, and this is what I really aspired to be, and I will tell you that it was his influence in my life that caused me to want to pursue ministry full-time, and a huge chunk of my desire for ministry was I get to work with young men, I get to meet with young men, I get to disciple some young men, I get to work with interns that are young men volunteers that are young men, and my hope has always been to reclaim what God wants manhood to be, and it's not a prideful thing, but it is something that God has put in my heart, and I hope he's put it in our leaders' hearts as well, and I hope he's put it in your heart as a young man if you're here this morning. Um, The fact that you're even here on a Sunday morning uh, speaks volumes about what you hope for and what you desire for. At least I hope it does. And so we're going to dive into what this means to be a man of God and what a man in a marriage and family looks like um, as we look at some of these, uh, these ideas. So even most men enter marriage having no understanding of what their role in marriage is supposed to be. Even the best of men will simply just try to emulate the good things and not do the bad things they saw their father do, right? So, but this ends up being a pretty shallow view of manhood if you just boil it down to just that. So, um, before we get going here, I want to have you look at the state of masculinity in our culture today, and this is what I call the man code. Every guy knows there's these unwritten rules that we call the man code, And here's a few of these unwritten rules. The first one is, no sissy stuff, right? No girly stuff. So if you hear, if a guy says something or does something, other men will call him out for being something like this. And they they may not use that word, it's kind of a passe word, but they use a different word today. The second thing that we learn in the man code is, is anger is better than sadness, So if there's one emotion men are allowed to feel, it is anger. It's not sadness. If a man shows he's sad, other men might call him out. So what happens is sadness gets channeled into anger, and a man is allowed to be angry in our culture, isn't he? If you're angry and you're a man, then people tend to, maybe they're scared of you. They might respect you. So anger is is better than sadness in the man code. Thirdly, take it like a man. So something someone might say whenever something happens to you and you're complaining about it or showing some weakness in their eyes. Well, come on, take it like a man. What's wrong with you? And then fourthly, he who dies with the most toys wins. This is a game people still play, right? So money, success, stuff, that's the point of life. And then... uh fifth thing nice guys finish last right if you're a nice guy well that means you're not going to you're not going to do well you're not going to perform well you're not going to get the girl you're not going to be someone who's successful nice guys finish last and then lastly um, it's all good so someone says you know how are you doing like i heard that something really horrible happened in your family a couple months ago no i'm good it's all good and so a man's not allowed to show any sense of um, I'm being affected by things or things are impacting me. And, and so this is what we call the man code. And I will tell you today that high school is boot camp for the man code. Is it not? If you violate these things, especially in junior high and high school, you will get called out. And the sad part about this is this is true even inside the church, This is true even inside the body of Christ. I can think back to when I was in high school, I felt like my manhood was constantly on the line, even with good friends of mine. It was like no one would just let something pass by. If there's a chance to, like, make fun of you or call you out, they will do it, right? Because you violated the man code. And so, young ladies, you need to understand this, that one of the young young guys and older guys... One of our biggest fears is violating the man code and being called out as a man. And this is what drives a lot of really strange weirdness when it comes to masculinity. So if you're asking yourself as a young lady, if you're like, why are guys like that? This is why. It's the man code. It's the man code, all right? Now, the man code has led... Many men to live short of what God, I think, intends for them to live as, as a man. And so, in fact, there's some, I like to read some, some challenging books at times, and there's some books that I read a while back uh, on manhood, and these are actually written by unbelievers. And the first book I, book I want to show you is called uh, Men to Boys, and it's called The Making of Modern Immaturity. And this is not even a Christian writing, this is a non-believer writing this stuff. And the next one I want to show you is called The Decline of Men. And if you can read in the small print, it says how the American male is getting axed, giving up, and flipping off his future. All right? So once again, not a Christian writing these books. This is not me just standing here before you and saying, you know, hey, all the Christian guys need to, you know, buck it up and get your game face on. That's not what this is about. Um, there is something happening culturally in our world, especially I think in the U.S., where even the unbelievers, listen, even unbelievers are taking notice. Y- you know things have gotten bad when even the unbelievers are taking notice of sin and brokenness, right? So, um, these books really highlight one thing, and it's mainly that, that a, lot of, a lot of young men and even older men today are what they call boy men, or men who can shave, or boys who can shave, I mean. Um, the Peter Pan syndrome, like, I don't want to grow up. I don't want the pressure of life on me. I don't want to grow up. So you've heard the saying, you've heard the saying, boys will be boys. Well, today, even the men will be boys. In fact, it's, it's a well-known fact, and I'm not trying to show, like, you know, one gender better than, I'm not trying to do that this morning, but listen, Girls are killing guys academically. That's a fact. There are more girls today in college than there are young men. That's also a fact. And in fact, I'll show you some other statistics here. In 1960, listen, by age 30, 1960, 77% of women and 65% of men completed what they call adult transitions. By transitions, I mean leaving home. Finishing school, financial independence, getting married, and having a child. Now, of course, the men didn't have, children, have a child, but you get the idea. They, By 1960, those are the percentages by age 30. By the year 2000, by age 30, only 46% of women and 31% of men completed those same adult transitions. I think some of this results from People are just getting more education and delaying marriage. For that's just a reality. But it also comes back to the high divorce rates in our culture, and people are just skeptical, and they just don't want to commit, and they're just not sure. They they don't want to make that lifelong. They don't wanna, they don't want to go down that road because they they think this is not. I don't want it to end up the way my parents ended up. But I think much of this comes back to that that. Part of the equation is that a lot of young men today just don't want to grow up. That is a cultural reality. In fact, writer Kevin DeYoung, he says this in his book, There is nothing wrong with being single. It can be a gift from the Lord and a gift to the church. But when there is an overabundance of Christian singles who want to be married, this is a problem. And it's a problem I put squarely at the feet of young men whose immaturity, passivity, and indecision are pushing their hormones to the limits of self-control, delaying the growing up process, and forcing countless numbers of young women to spend lots of time and money pursuing their career when they would rather be getting married and having children. And it's not just in the U.S. This is a worldwide phenomenon. So, um, many years ago, my wife and I went to the country of Italy for a, this is our, our pre-baby trip, right? Before we had our first shower, we like, let's go on a fun trip. So we went to Italy, and we stayed in this beautiful island of Capri. Like, you know girls, like, y'all wear the, I guess they call them Capri pants, like the shorter, they're shorts, but not shorts and not pants. I don't know what that's about, but um, Capri pants. Y'all don't really wear those anymore. They're kind of out of style, I know. But listen. Um, Capri, the island of Capri, where Capri pants were born, all right? So, we're on the island of Capri, and we're staying in this bed and breakfast, and there's this Italian man, Italian wife, and they don't speak any English, but they had this son. Son's name was Costanzo. That's how they said his name, Costanzo, right? And he was like, I think in his maybe late 20s, early 30s, but Italy, in the country of Italy, do you know that over half the men under 35 live at home with mom and dad? More than half. And Costanzo was a prime example. So Costanzo would usually sleep in until maybe, I don't know, 11 o'clock, and then he would get on his little moped, and he would ride around the island for a while, and then come back, maybe take a nap eat some pound cake, and then I don't know what else the guy did, but he, I don't think he had a job. And so it's not just a U.S. thing. This is kind of a worldwide phenomenon where, where young men especially, and this happens to, to, to creep up into the older ages as well, but they just want to throw off the responsibility of what it means to be a man. So I know this is kind of sounding depressing, so let's look at some scriptures, shall we? I want to look at some Bible with you today. So turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll look at verse 25. We've looked at this passage already in the series. I want to look at it again. Ephesians 5, 25. Here's what it says. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So in this first verse, very simply, What does this passage tell us about the role of men in marriage? What's the first thing it says? Okay, love your wives. Now, that might look very simple to you. Let me tell you, as a married man, it's complicated. Okay? It's a very complicated concept. I love my wife. She is amazing. And I think she still loves me. I think. But listen. Loving your wives is a very, very difficult task because you are two sinners that want your way. And so this, on the, on the surface, from your vantage point, this seems simple, right? Well, yeah, of course. I, mean, I love my wife. Yeah. I mean, if I loved her, why would I, if I didn't love her, why would I have married her? Of course, that's easy. That's loving your wife. Okay, we got that. But I want to remind you, listen, the fact that it's a command implies that at some point it's going to be hard. The fact that Paul has to write it down for the church, love husbands, love your wives, implies that at some point you're not going to feel like loving your wife. At some point it's going to become difficult and difficult, just hard, right? And so this is why he goes on to tell you how Your love should be characterized. He says in verse 28, he said, look at this, verse 28, he says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So I think what Paul's trying to paint, Paul's trying to paint this picture of oneness in marriage between a man and a wife, picture of oneness, but he's also painting a picture of oneness between Christ and the church. So oneness, husband, wife, oneness, church, who's the bride of Christ, and Jesus Christ, oneness between Christ and his church. So I want you to get this image out of your head. Get this image out of your head that when you get married that you are now two separate individuals who are in a perpetual game of tug of war. That is not a picture of marriage, of two people who are are now married and there's still two individuals who he's pulling this way and she's pulling this way and the strongest one is going to get their way and win the battle. That's not a picture of marriage. A picture of marriage is two people become one. Both become one and listen, when you realize that you are one with this person, the whole concept of sacrifice looks different. Because last time I checked, my body, the way it works together, the, the hand's not fighting with the foot. If the hand needs to do something, the foot will cooperate. Because it's just one body. It's just one And this is the way in which you need to look at marriage, young men, is you need to look at your wife, your future wife, as she is going to be one with you. And if you do things that are going to hurt her and injure her, emotionally or physically, that would be just like you doing that to yourself. That would be just like you taking your Hand and a knife, and stabbing your other arm with the knife. It, it would make no sense. You you don't you don't want to hurt yourself. And so when you hurt and you damage your wife, this is what you're doing because she, she's one with you. She's one with you. So why would you damage her by doing that? You damage yourself. So Paul's painting a picture of oneness in. Uh, Ephesians 5. And so, this is the call for young men, for men in marriage. And here's the call. God calls men to be servant leaders. God calls men to be servant leaders. Yes, you are called to lead. That is spiritual responsibility, but you're also called to be a servant as you lead her. And when you first hear that Phrase, servant leaders, at first sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? How can a person be a servant but also be a leader? It sounds like they contradict one another. But here's what it means to be a leader: God makes you spiritually responsible for the family. And so to be a leader means that you initiate. Whenever I do premarital counseling with couples, I always say this to the young guy: I say, look, to be the leader does not mean you have all the answers, it doesn't mean that you always have the plan. It doesn't mean that you always decide every single thing, but it does mean that you initiate. So that means if your wife, if your wife makes comments like, you know, yeah, we really, we really need to get that, that one thing taken care of, that you go, you know, note to self. Maybe later on you say, hey, I was thinking about what you were saying, and you're right, we do need to get that taken care of. So let's get together a plan. Let's talk about this, get together a plan and work this thing out. And so as a man... It does not mean you have all the answers or that you have all the plans up in your your brilliant brain. But it does mean that you initiate as a man in the marriage, spiritually and even emotionally. You initiate with your future wife. And so it means that as the leader, you're asking, how can I humbly serve my wife and my family? And I'll ask the young ladies here, when when you see the word servant leader, Does that word, does that sound oppressive to you? Does that sound chauvinistic? Does it sound overbearing when we say the word servant leader? Because it shouldn't. It shouldn't because Jesus is the picture that Paul paints for us when he says, you serve your wife like a servant leader in the same way that, that Christ loved his church and gave himself up for her. Now, when I say servant-leader, here's what happens. Any man I can show you is maybe more natural at being a servant or more natural at being a leader. Most men are not good at both. Most men are good at one or most men are good at like, hey, give me something. to do. I'll, I'll serve. I'll, I'll, I can do physical tasks. I can serve somebody with my hands. I can do whatever I need to do. I can serve. And I'm good at that, being behind the scenes. But. But leadership, that's tough. Like that requires initiative. That requires me to think ahead and and me to um, initiate with her. And I really can't do that well. Or some of you guys, you're like, no, I got that down. Like I'm I am type A personality. I walk into a room and everyone kind of sits up because they know who I am. And I control. I'm really good at like commanding people and you know telling them what to do. Like I'm a really good leader. But you might struggle in the area of service and selflessly serving someone else. So here's the deal. When you get married, young men, the rest of your life will become a project of sanctification where God wants you to become both, servant, leader. So for me, leadership does not come naturally to me. God's had to grow me and sanctify me, and he's still doing a a work in leadership. I never saw myself doing a job like this. I've always been kind of insecure in my leadership ability. But God wants to grow us. God wants to make us into this combination, just like Jesus was, a servant leader, someone who initiates in the same way Jesus initiates with his church, But also someone who serves and is humble and sacrificial. And so God wants to spend the rest of your life making you a combination of both. So this means that as a man, you will hopefully know how to be tough and tender. You'll know when to exert leadership as a man, but also know how to be tender with your wife and with your kids. This is what servant leader, how it's pictured. Now here's the deal. Because sin entered the world, there are about six different ways in which men, young and old, try to shirk this responsibility. I want to show you these six, and I've got to move very quickly because of time. But here are what I call the six different kinds of men. Now, listen, are these stereotypes? Yes, they are. But are stereotypes helpful and somewhat true? Yes, they are. So the first is the angry man. People say men aren't emotional. That's not true. Men are emotional, but often it comes out as anger. So, as I said before, for many men, even sadness becomes anger. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, in your anger, do not sin. Paul is saying that it's possible, catch this, in your anger, do not sin. Paul saying it's possible to be angry, but not sin. So, all anger isn't sin. I mean, Jesus got angry. But the only kind of anger you should have as a man is righteous anger over sin. There is a righteous anger that's good and proper and just, and usually it should be over sin, anger over sin. So most men are angry about the wrong things, and as a young man I want to encourage you to be angry about the right things, the same things that God gets angry about should also, yes, inspire some anger in us. Even the the philosopher Aristotle said this, he said, anyone can become angry, but to be angry with the right person to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, in the right way, this is not easy. So when we as men get angry about the wrong things, this only shows our weakness. It doesn't show strength, it shows weakness. So the second kind of man is the passive man. Some men are angry and aggressive, while other men are squeamish and passive, never want to assert themselves, want to stay in the background. And so the temptation in marriage is to be physically present but emotionally absent. Just come home, check out, you know, say hi to the kids, say hi to the wife, but go to your man cave and watch TV, focus on hobbies, um, spend your weekends just always gone because, you know, you deserve it. And so this is the passive man. And so, while the angry man probably cares too much, the passive man cares too little. So, you might say it like this When a man cares too much for the wrong things, it leads to anger. When a man cares too little for the right things, it leads to passivity. So, anger is caring too much for the wrong things, passivity is caring too much, too little for the right things. So these men could be flipped, right? Both are bad, but there's the angry man, there's the passive man. So once again, ladies, this is really important for you to understand. Men are terrified of failure. We're terrified of it. As men, we are wired to conquer, we're wired to succeed, We're wired to desire that. But as men, we are absolutely terrified of failure. This is why I think men become passive. Because they don't want to assert themselves. Because a man can always say, you know what? I didn't fail if I didn't try. I didn't, no one could call me a failure because I didn't didn't actually do what I was supposed to do. I I never tried. And so men often hide behind this, this sort of passive veil never wanting to assert themselves, never wanting to stick their neck out because they're afraid their head will get chopped off. And so they resort to passivity because they don't want to look like a fool. Because they've bought the cultural lie that says real men never fail. That's a cultural lie that real men, that's not true. And you see what happens whenever you are changed by Jesus and the gospel, here's what happens. As a man, you begin to understand that my identity is not tied to success. And so, yeah, if I fail at something, who cares? Like, it's worth trying. It's worth sticking my neck out there because it's it's, it's for the gospel. My identity is in Christ. It, it, there's nothing that's going to take that away from me. And so you have to understand that, that you can't be someone who's a slave to fear. Um, And be this passive kind of man. The third kind of man is the funny man. This is everyone's favorite kind of man. This is the, the guy that everyone loves. Guys love him. Girls love him. He is the life of the party. He is just full of humor and comedy. And God has gifted him in some pretty amazing ways. He can make anyone laugh. He always has something really funny to say. He's very quick-witted. But here's the problem with this guy is that everything becomes a joke to this guy. Like, he's he's never serious. He never takes anything serious. So Ecclesiastes 3, 1 and 4 says this, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. I don't recommend that most of you guys ever dance. Young man, don't don't try that. You'll look foolish. But listen, there is a time, there is a time for laughter. There is a time for these things. But for this guy, he thinks it's all the time. He thinks it's just, yeah, everything's a joke, everything's a party, everything is really funny. And but really, this guy doesn't want to face the reality of life, so he hides behind humor. So Ecclesiastes says, No, there's a time for humor. There's a time for being the funny guy, but there's also a time to weep and a time to mourn. And this guy doesn't want to go there, so everything to him is just surface level, funny, nothing's real serious, nothing's really deep and reflective. This is the one who can, like, never, I'm going to go here today, okay, who can never focus in during small group time? This is the one who, whenever it's time to get into the word and really unpack it and discover what God has for us, they can't do it because I just don't want to go there. I just, something is just holding them back from really taking anything seriously. And I will tell you that if there is one kind of man I'm describing to you today that over the last 13 years here at TBC just about every young man who has fit this stereotype, things have not gone well. As I look at these young men as they pass through and I see where their life is headed, things have not gone well for this kind of man. And my biggest concern for this kind of guy is that he fits in really well here when he's in high school. He fits into youth groups really well. He he fits in because everybody loves this guy. He's just a, he's the life of the party. And sometimes he even gets involved in service. He loves to serve because, hey, it's fun. I mean, impact, mission trips. I mean, serving always looks good in front of the ladies, right? Like, this kind of guy loves to be involved, to be around people. And that is what a youth group is about. But here's the deal. One of the most dangerous things about this guy is that it all just seems so harmless, right? What's the big deal? I'm not doing anything wrong, but over time, this person's faith begins to implode because they never really had a true, truly rooted faith to begin with. So this guy um, takes, makes everything light, makes everything a mockery, makes everything humorous and funny and comedic. And I'll tell you, I love humor. I love it. My wife will tell you, I will watch comedians. I love watching stand up comedians. I love watching comedians. But there's a time. There's a time for that. And your humor is a gift. God has gifted you. So use it for the kingdom, use it for Jesus. Don't be this person who just says, you know what, I, this is my identity, making people laugh and me being like, la- that's my identity. No, let Jesus be your identity. Let him become, let him use your gift of humor for the kingdom. It is a gift. Now let him use it for his will and his purposes. The fourth kind of guy is the lustful man. I won't spend a ton of time here because we're going to talk a lot more about this uh, stuff in a few weeks. But the lustful man. I'll be clear. It is not a sin for a man to think a woman is attractive, or beautiful. That is not what I'm talking about today. So what is the difference between lust and simply saying someone's beautiful? I'll be very quick about this. You cross over into lust when your eyes or your desires get specific. So it's not wrong for you to have this desire for what God's created you for. That's not wrong. That's not sinful. But when you start gazing and you start looking at stuff online and looking at people in certain ways as if they are an object and no longer a person this is when you cross over into lustful things and this can happen for the females as well but today we're talking about the guys in fact it's not even wrong it's not wrong that god wired men visually that's not wrong that's not that's not a sinful thing but that becomes twisted because of sin in fact, the man is supposed to initiate, so when I met my wife, of course, I was, I was attracted when I first met her. And, and think about if, if men weren't at least somewhat visually wired, I mean, would I have initiated? I don't know that I would have initiated it initially. And so if, if man was not at least somewhat visually wired, well, there might not be any relationships. There might be no marriage, no kids. And so God wired us in certain ways. It's not necessarily sinful. It's the way he wired us. But that can become twisted because of sin and the fall. And so here's the the issue. The, The lustful man often becomes also an angry man. And here's why. Modern research has shown that men who look at porn also become extremely angry. You might ask the question, why is that? Here's why. Michael Kimmel in his book says, pornography is a world where guys never have to be tested or face rejection. So when a man like that enters into the real world, has to talk to a real woman with real emotions, and she's a true, real person, and he's rejected, he's angry. How can this this happen? And so they're linking this lustful man. This can easily become the angry man because he doesn't get what he wants. And what he wants is a twisted version of what God has designed. And so this is the lustful man. Lust promises what it can't deliver. And so this man can't can't get what he wants. He becomes the angry man. And so, again, all this comes back to the fear of failure I just talked to you about. Men are angry. Fearful of failure. And so this kind of woman on a screen, she never requires a thing of him. She's just there on the screen. She's not real. So she never requires him to be a real man. And so this is the lustful man. Fifthly, the boy man. I won't spend time on this. I already talked about this at the beginning. Man doesn't want to grow up. He won't grow up. That's the boy man. Lastly is the prideful man, number six. The root of all sin is pride. Men are prideful. Ladies, trust me, listen. We are prideful. We are about ourselves. This is our sinful nature. Proverbs 16 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be lowly in spirit and among the oppressed than to share plunder with the proud. The scriptures are clear that I think all the ones we've talked about this morning, pride is at the root. So yeah, you can't, there's some crossover here in these different kinds of men. But I want to just, I wanted to point this out to you today because I think that these are the specific ways in which your own flesh and Satan wants to trip you up from being the kind of servant leader that God wants you to become as a man. These are the ways in which it happens, typically. And so I want to just remind you this morning that God places, God places a load on you as the man, a spiritual responsibility, and it should not be a burden. It should be a joyous desire in you as a man to want to bear this load, And carry this load for the sake of the kingdom. There's a guy named Mark Driscoll who said this, and I'll explain this quote. He says, men are like trucks. They drive smoother and straighter with a load. And that reminded me of a story. When I was in high school, I had to raise money for a mission trip. And my youth pastor had this big truck, pickup truck. And it was a, just a two-wheel drive. I had rear-wheel drive. It wasn't four-wheel drive at all. Had a big truck. And he said, hey, if you want to raise some money, he said, hey, come to my house. I've got this hydraulic wood splitter, which was awesome. And he said, you can split wood, load the wood in the back of the truck, and then take it to people's houses and, and ask for a donation for the mission trip. And I said, that sounds great. So I'd go after school. I'd drive to his house. I'd get the thing set up. And I would split like a whole truckload of wood in an afternoon. Load it into his truck. Well, this one time I had to drive like 30 miles to deliver it to this guy that was a friend of his. And I get in the truck, and I didn't know they were calling for snow that day. This is on the East Coast. And so I get in the truck, and I'm driving, and the snow starts while I'm driving. And I'm like, I, I'm in a truck, not a big deal. And so I'm driving all the way, like 30 miles away, and the snow is now starting to stick on the road. Get to his house, I unload the truck. Now I've got to drive 30 miles back to my youth pastor's house. Whole different story, all right? So I'm now, get on the road. Now that the the, the snow's like three inches deep, and I'm going through like back country roads, windy roads throughout the countryside, and I spun out, like where I'm going down the road, and there's like a, a car coming this way, and I just lose control, and the truck would just do like these donuts on the road while I'm in the truck, right? And this happened like four or five times. I was... Scared. I was so fearful of what was gonna happen. I refer to it as the night I almost died. Literally. Back then we had no cell phones. I couldn't even pull over and like call anyone. It took me three hours to go like 30 miles. I was going so slow. And I get back and my pastor's like, So did you wreck my truck? And I'm like, No, we made it back. I made it back. But here's what I noticed. The moment that wood came out of that truck and I had to get back on that road, that's when all the slipping and sliding began because whenever you've got a load like that, it actually weighs you down, you can actually get through some treacherous road and you'll be okay. But the moment that load is taken off is when you seem to slip and slide all over the place and have no direction and I think the same thing is true spiritually as a young man, that when you feel the weight of the load that God has placed on you as a young man, you will have direction, you will live with a purpose, you will live with the kingdom of God in mind. The moment you try to shirk your responsibility, you will be all over the place as a young man. And so one of the ways I want to challenge you this morning, in this is as we think and talk about impact. Because as a young man, every single year we have a two to one girl to guy ratio with impact. I will have a hundred young ladies doing impact and about 50 young men. I'm not beating you up this morning, I'm just trying to inspire you to action to say you have a chance as a young man to start. Being a being a leader, a spiritual leader, a servant leader, as we serve the young children of our city, you've got a chance to do that as we do impact. I would love it. I would be blown away if just young men just poured in here our first meeting for impact and say, "You know what? I want to take this responsibility on now." take on the responsibility take on some of this load that God wants me to bear even at this age so i can begin practicing for when i have a wife and some kids someday i would love it if some of you young men would take that as your first step of faith and listen listen i mentioned fear of failure i know some of you are scared but i want to tell you it's okay because when you stick your neck out for the gospel, your identity is in Christ. Your identity is in Him, and if you fail, it's no big deal. Listen, when you're working for the King, it doesn't matter. Like it's not success is not your identity. And so I want you to catch that vision um, these next few weeks. Listen. We are completely out of time, so we can't do discussion. I'm going to pray, and you guys can, can, uh, can go home. Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for the example you set for us to be a servant leader. We thank you for that role that you played so that we can be inspired to action in our role as young men, especially in the context of marriage and family. We thank you for that, that picture you painted for us so many years ago and even to this day. We love you. We praise you. We pray I Listen in your name.